When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Age of Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. And today we continue the story of Fredericksburg's Lewis Jordan. In the previous episode, we learned about the majority of Lewis Jordan's life. Born to German Texans in Gillespie County in 1890, Jordan hadn't graduated from high school. He didn't have that option. Instead, at age 16, he did the next best thing and took an exam giving him a state teacher certificate. He then went to San Antonio Academy for a year and earned a scholarship to the University of Texas in Austin. With practically no football experience, Jordan became a legendary lineman for the school, the state, and the South. From a life in an area without electricity, he had earned a degree in electrical engineering, and he graduated with the reputation of being a likable person and a dedicated leader. The year that Jordan had made the All-American Honors in 1914 was significant for another reason, if you are familiar with the Great War. On June 28, 1914, a young assassin named Gavrilo Princip fired a couple of shots from his little FN Model 1910 pistol. One bullet struck the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in the neck, and the other struck his wife Sophie in the stomach. Both died, and the shots were the fire that lit the fuse that would explode a tangle of circumstances and agreements into what we today call World War I. Participants at the time called it the Great War, and some very optimistic people labeled it the war to end all wars. A. Scott Berg wrote, Like the headwaters of a great river, several influences converged in 1914 until they created an unstoppable flow of events that produced one of the most cataclysmic torrents mankind has ever experienced. Streams of imperialism, nationalism, and militarism joined, and soon they surged through an intricate system of alliances until they created the First World War. It engulfed much of two continents and engaged the rest of the globe for four years, and its effects continue to permeate 21st century politics, economics, geography, and psychology. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire on June 28, 1914 set off a series of events that quickly led to a global war called the Great War and later World War I between the central powers of Germany, Austria, Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and their allies against the Entente or Allied powers of Great Britain, France, Russia, and later joined by Japan and Italy. In the United States which, as a matter of policy, had long attempted to remain neutral, 
with the affairs of European powers. People played close attention to the events happening overseas as the government maintained its policy of neutrality. Most Texans agreed that neutrality was the best policy. While Jordan and his teammates were making history on the football field, the same newspapers that reported on his battles on the field carried news about battles with much deadlier consequences. Germany had invaded Luxembourg and Belgium, and France had invaded Alsace in August. British forces crossed the channel to fight with the French. Austria-Hungary invaded Russia that month, and in September the Allied forces had stopped the German advance in the First Battle of the Marne. Germany was active with a blockade of Britain, and in May of 1915, a German submarine sank the passenger liner Lusitania. 128 Americans were among the dead. 1916 brought the battles of Verdun and the Somme. By then, visions of glory and heroism were already long-distant memories. A British soldier, Donald Hankey, sent the following words to a British magazine describing what was going on. He wrote, Here we are where we started. Day and night we have done nothing but bring in the wounded and the dead. When one sees the dead, their limbs crushed and mangled. One can only have revulsion for the war. It was easy to talk of glory and heroism when one is away from it. But here, in the presence of the mutilated and tortured dead, one can only feel the horror and wickedness of war. Indeed, it is an evil harvest sown of pride and arrogance and lust of power. End quote. He was killed at the Somme, leading his men over the top in an attack. The magazine it was submitted to refused to publish his words because they were not patriotic. It would have been an issue that the young Louis Jordan, with his German heritage, would have been greatly interested. After graduating with his degree in engineering in 1915, Jordan returned to the San Antonio Academy to teach. Given his football achievements, it should be no surprise that Jordan also coached the San Antonio's Academy's football team. The school was excited to have the famous athlete leading its young men on the field. And then after a year teaching and coaching, Jordan left the Academy to accept a position as an engineer with the San Antonio Public Service Company. At the time, the war was ever-present in the minds of people across the United States including Texas. The newspapers were filled with the descriptions of the battles and of the German activities at sea. Out of all the things that contributed to drawing the United States into the Great War, there are two big ones. Germany's decision to continuous attacks of unrestricted submarine warfare, in which it targeted even civilian ships headed to enemy ports, and the Zimmerman telegram, which had a lot to do with Texas. British cryptographers had deciphered a telegram in January 1917 from Arthur Zimmermann, who was Germany's foreign minister, to Heinrich von Eckhart, Germany's foreign minister to Mexico. In the message, Germany proposed offering Mexico the territory it had lost to the United States, including Texas, if it would join the cause of the Central Powers. Things had already been stressful along the border for quite some time. This did not help things. Since 1916, the United States had been training 30,000 regular Army people 
and 145,000 militia soldiers stationed along the Mexican border in Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. The troubles in Mexico and attacks by Pancho Villa across the Rio Grande had raised a great deal of concern. Brigadier General John J. Pershing commanded these border troops and, in fact, Pershing had led troops on a punitive mission into Mexico in 1916 to kill or capture Villa. He was not successful. Following the decision to join the Allies in the Great War, Brigadier General John J. Pershing and his border troops would be the nucleus of the army traveling overseas to fight in France as the American Expeditionary Forces. See Jeff Gwynn's great book, War on the Border, for more on this part of our history. On February 1, 1917, Germany returned to its unrestricted submarine warfare. Two days later, the United States severed its diplomatic relations with Germany on February 3, 1917, while Louis Jordan was working in San Antonio. The United States severed diplomatic relations with Germany, and on April 6, 1917, the United States declared war on Germany. Pershing was given command of the AEF in May of 1917, a position of both great power and great responsibility. Jordan decided to leave his job in San Antonio, where he had been responsible for the electric streetcar railway. It had been a good job to put his electrical engineering degree to use. Jordan had worked there for only about four months, and then he decided to enlist. Out of the 10 million available for service in the United States, Jordan was one of only 130,000 that enlisted in the United States Army in the first three months after the declaration of war. In the first three months after the declaration of war. Louis Jordan volunteered for service on May 14th. He signed his draft registration card on May 29, 1917 at Camp Funston at the Leon Springs facility. The camp was soon renamed Camp Stanley and should not be confused with the Kansas Camp Funston. The first officer's training camp was established on May 8, 1917, just north of Anderson Hill at Camp Funston at the Leon Springs Military Reservation, 20 miles northwest of San Antonio in the northwestern section of Bear County. The purpose of the FOTC was to provide in 90 days most of the junior officers for newly formed divisions. The trainees became known as 90-Day Wonders. The camp would be, as I said, renamed Camp Stanley later in the year, and before his 90 days of training were up, both Lieutenant Dwight David Eisenhower and Lieutenant Walton H. Walker, who later commanded the United States 8th Army in Korea, both members of the 57th Infantry would also be there with Jordan. At the end of his 90 days, in the summer of 1917, Jordan won the commission of first lieutenant and was assigned to the field artillery. Pershing arrived in England with his staff on June 7, 1917, and the first of many American forces arrived in France on June 24, 1917, while Jordan was still at the Leon Springs training camp. At a ceremony at the grave of the Marquis de Lafayette in early July 1917, Colonel Charles E. Stanton, a member of Pershing's staff, 
first used the phrase that would be repeated over and over as the Americans traveled across the Atlantic. The words were, Lafayette, we are here. It even inspired music, with the lyrics of one song saying, Lafayette, we're going over to pay our debt we owe to you. Lafayette, we still remember what you did for the red, white, and blue. All our men are getting ready. They will soon sail over the sea to fight with France and her allies for the cause of liberty. Now our boys in drab are there, fighting for dear France so fair, paying up the debt we owe to that great land. Though it's past 100 years, we hope you can hear their cheers. And Lafayette, we know you'll understand. By the end of the war, it is said that some American soldiers, no longer itching for a fight, returned home saying something to the effect of, We've paid our debt to Lafayette. Who the hell do we owe now? Why such a change of feeling? Because the British, French, Germans, and others had already suffered enormously. And while the Americans were definitely welcome, they would suffer their fair share of hell. The situation football star Louis Jordan and others were entering was effectively captured by an American writer in 1916, a year before the United States declared war on Germany. Esther Singleton published a successful multi-volume history of the world in the early 1900s. Its title was The World's Great Events, an index history of the world from earliest times to the present day by great historians, edited by Esther Singleton. First published in five volumes in 1903, the collection went through several editions in 1908, 1913, and 1915. For the final chapter in the 1916 10-volume edition, Singleton penned a chapter of her own titled The Great European War, A.D. 1914-1916. In its opening, she captures the horror already experienced by the Europeans. She said, A detailed history of the most colossal calamity that ever befell the world would fill libraries rather than volumes. Years ago, imaginative writers predicted that a war of the 20th century might be with all the resources of modern chemistry and new implements and engines of warfare. And they gave rein to their fancy in picturing novel duels in the air with airships and flying machines. But not one of the most wildly fanciful ever pictured a hundredth part of the horrors and diabolical inventions which are used by both sides in the war. These include liquid fire, hand grenades, the submarine, and the bomb-dropping zeppelin. Through the great discoveries and inventions of the 19th and 20th centuries, such as rapid transit telegraphs and telephones, the uttermost parts of the world have been brought together. Louis XIV remarked that there were no longer any Pyrenees. The rulers of the 20th century might say there are no longer any seas, for distance and time have both been annihilated. It was this colossal calamity that Jordan and the other Americans would soon be joining with hopes of bringing it to an end. Jordan was assigned to Battery C of the 149th Field Artillery, which would later become part of the 42nd Rainbow Division. The 42nd received its name, the Rainbow Division, because Major Douglas MacArthur described it as a stretching like a rainbow across the United States. described it as stretching like a rainbow across the United States. 
Lieutenant Louis J. Jordan and other members of the 42nd Division set sail for Halifax from New York aboard the SS Kroonland on September 12, 1917. They set out with an Allied convoy from Halifax for Liverpool, and after some submarine scares across the Atlantic, they arrived on the foggy morning of September 30, 1917. Jordan then sailed across the Channel with his part of the American Expeditionary Force and arrived in France on October 4, 1917. He was among the first United States soldiers and the first of the 42nd to land in France. Training continued after landing in the Normandy port of Le Havre, France. From there, they traveled by train carriage to a camp at La Valbonne, where they were trained by battle-scarred French officers with varying English ability. They went through drills of mock raids and elaborate trench systems with live bombs and were then trained in the use of gas masks, machine guns, and trench mortars. During this time, Jordan and his fellow soldiers corresponded with family and loved ones back home. There were many rumors about where the troops would be sent in the future. Some speculated that they would be sent to Russia. Others thought they would be sent home as instructors. None of that happened. He was then transferred to the battlefront. He was officially assigned to the 42nd Infantry Division on New Year's Day having sailed over with the 42nd as an unassigned reservist. Now, the creation of the Rainbow Division had been authorized on August 1st, 1917, less than two months after the creation of the Big Red One, the AEF's first operational division, the first U.S. Infantry Division. Secretary of War Baker wanted the new unit to have the best trained men available, and he also wanted it to represent all parts of the country. It was Major Douglas MacArthur who suggested to Secretary Baker that it be an amalgamation of elements from the National Guard, as had been done with regular Army soldiers in the creation of the Big Red One. That's how Jordan and many of his fellow Texans came to be a part of it, because he was one of the best. Assembly had started at Camp Mills, Long Island on August 30th, 1917, after Jordan had already went overseas and was completed on September 13th, 1917. It was one of the first American divisions on the front and saw action at Loonville, where Jordan would fall, Baccarat, Champagne, Chateau Thierry, the Dubrec, Saint-Mihel, Moose, Argonne, and Sedan. The division was composed of the following units, 165th, 166th, 167th, and 168th Infantry Regiments, the 149th, 150th, and 151st Field Artillery Regiments, the 149th, 150th, and 151st Machine Gun Battalions, and the 117th Engineers. Major General Charles D. Rhodes, who had served in the 6th Cavalry Regiment during the tragic final U.S. Army campaign against the Sioux in 1890, commanded the division. The 1st Division, the Big Red One, had entered the trenches in October. The Rainbow Division took over former French trenches from them, on November 17, 1917, no American unit had made a raid by itself until March 1918. On March 3, 1918, Russia withdrew from fighting the Germans in the east when Soviet Russia signed a treaty with the Central Powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey at Brest-Litovsk. The treaty marks Russia's final withdrawal from World War I. Russia surrendered one-third of Russia's population, half of her industry, and 90% of her coal mines, and Russia also ceded lands including Poland, Ukraine, and Finland 
and agree to make cash payments for the release of Russian prisoners. For Germany and the Allied powers fighting against her, this was especially significant. The treaty freed up about 50 divisions and gave Germany the chance, if it acted quickly, to win the war before the full strength of the United States military and industrial resources were fully deployed and operational. With this goal in mind, Germany would launch the Ludendorff, or First Spring Offensive, against the British on the Somme on March 21, 1918. Before that happened, tragedy struck the Rainbow Division on March 5th, just two days after Russia left the war. The last letter the Jordan family received from Lieutenant Jordan stated that he believed that he and his men would go into action on February 15, 1918. In fact, Lieutenant Louis Jordan and the other members of the Rainbow Division took position in Lorraine on the Loonsville sector on February 1st, 1918. Jordan and the division were surprised at what they found. They expected barbed wire entanglements and shrapnel. Instead, they found cows grazing near the communications trenches in a quiet situation. According to Lieutenant McCrumman, who was in Battery D next to Jordan's battery, both sides, the French and German stationed there, were both war-weary, and they had, quote, settled down to wait for the close of the war. Loonville was the quiet sector, and that is why the Americans were sent there for more training. Now enter the Americans on February 1st, 1918. As McCrumman said, the Americans turned the dope over. The Americans began practicing firing their artillery, killing some German soldiers in the process, according to McCrumman. The Americans were not war-weary. They were ready to fight. Jordan and his fellows had been in France since October and had seen no action. They were impatient and restless for a fight, so according to McCrumman, during artillery practice, they started to drop shells close to the German quarters. This apparently provoked a response, and the retaliation resulted in a result that wasn't good for Jordan or his family. Now, by March of 1918, there were over 300,000 American troops in France. A few had been engaged in combat during the November 1917 Battle of Cambrai, but most, like Jordan, had been placed in training areas of relatively quiet sections of the Allied lines. There would be more than 1,390,000 members of the American Expeditionary Force by the end of July. Jordan kept a diary while in the service and wrote his final entry on March 2nd, 1918. He wrote, The fighting we are doing now is the real thing. A man gets to be quite a fatalist in this game. If somehow or another they get me, all well and good. If not, still better. But somehow I feel safe. Back in Jordan's hometown of Fredericksburg, the community had rallied in support of the United States war efforts. When the war began, the majority of eligible men of age enlisted to serve in the United States Armed Services, even though they would be facing off against possible kinsmen and the soldiers of their ancestors' former homeland. Those too young or too old remained to work the farms, and the German-founded community of Fredericksburg adopted the slogan of America First during the Great War. They held a patriotic play week in October 1918, where 450 students from the parochial schools joined in supervised play with the public school children. 
They listened under the trees to stories from literature and folklore and sang patriotic songs. William Wurzbach gave a speech on Americanism, and afterward, the German speakers agreed to speak English in the presence of those who didn't understand it. The Gillespie County Unit of the Council of National Defense enlisted the services of men, women, and children, and churches and social organizations to participate in home defense activities. Schools began offering classes in English available free of charge to everyone interested in learning. The San Antonio Express ran a large article on the pro-American actions of the people of Fredericksburg in Gillespie County, and for good reason. After the war had been declared against Germany, a great wave of anti-German sentiment washed over the United States. Texas was no exception, and people started questioning the loyalty of German Texans. Meanwhile, 5,000 miles away in France, Louis Jordan would show his community's commitment to their nation. On the afternoon of March 5, 1918, which was a Tuesday, the Germans launched a half-hour bombardment on the 149th. Jordan ordered his men into a dugout. Just at the end of that half-hour, as the attack was winding down, one of the final German shells fell right in front of the dugout in which Jordan was taking shelter. He took the full force of the shell and died instantly. Louis Jordan, son, brother, friend star athlete, engineer, respected across the state. In an instant, the 28-year-old with a promising future was erased from existence. The price of war had been levied on Texas. The greatest football player from Texas, and perhaps the Southwest and the South, a leader, beloved by many, admired by more, a son, a brother, a friend, was no more. Louis Jordan, and whatever future he might have had, was erased from existence and possibility. But he was just one of thousands similarly erased since 1914, and more would follow before the war was over. The Americans had yet to become fully involved in the war, and the Germans had big plans in the works. They launched their first major offensive of the spring of 1918 on March 21st. 17 days after Jordan was unfortunate enough to have a shell explode in the doorway of his dugout. The reinforcements from the Eastern Front that had been freed up with the peace for, with Russia had arrived by that date. The attack drew American forces into combat before scheduled, but their performance under fire showed that they were prepared to do their part. With his death, Louis Jordan became the first Texas officer killed in action in France. He was also the first and only graduate of the first 1917 officer's training camp at Leon Springs to fall. On the night of March 9th, 1918, citing the improved communications of the time, William J. Jordan received a message sent by wire from the War Department. It was the message that all parents, spouses, and children fear might come. His son, had been killed in action on Tuesday, March 5th, 1918. He was only 28 years old. They would have to wait until later to learn the details of his death. It was Captain Richardson of the 149th Field Artillery that sent the Jordan family the letter explaining what had happened. In the field, France, March 6th, 1918, Captain Richardson penned, My dear Mr. Jordan, 
It is with the very deepest regret that I have to tell you of the death of your son, which occurred about five o'clock yesterday afternoon. We had been heavily shelled by the Germans for half an hour previous, and one of the last shells of the bombardment burst just in front of his dugout, the full force of the shell taking the line of least resistance. It will please you to know that death was instantaneous, and so there was no suffering in connection with it. Lewis was a man we had all grown to love and admire. When I took command of this position, he was the first officer I brought with me, and I feel very great personal loss in his being taken away. And in addition, the personal loss to his friends, his country lost a true American and a good officer. He is to be buried tomorrow with full military honors, the first death in action of our regiment. I wish I might express to you in some adequate way the great sympathy for all of you that is in my heart, and how very deeply I regret this loss, which though is very great to us, his friends, must be infinitely greater to you, his family. Very sincerely yours, George Richardson, Captain, 149th Field Artillery. And so two days later after his death, on March 7th, 1918, First Lieutenant Lewis Jordan was buried with full military honors at a cemetery 5,000 miles away from his hometown. And he also received military honors posthumously from France. Back home in Austin, both houses of the Texas State Legislature recognized Lewis Jordan's sacrifice. In the House, Representatives Holliday, Lang, Haydusak, and Johnson introduce a resolution in memory of Lieutenant Lewis J. Jordan. And it reads, Mr. Holliday offered the following resolution, whereas on the 5th day of March, A.D. 1918, Lieutenant Lewis J. Jordan of Fredericksburg, Gillespie County, Texas, an officer in the United States Army serving his country in France, was killed in action against the enemy. And whereas Lewis J. Jordan was the first American officer from the state of Texas to give his life on the field of battle in defense of his country, our freedom and liberty, therefore be it resolved that we offer to his surviving parents, his brothers and sisters, our most sincere sympathy and their great loss. And that a page of the House Journal be set aside and dedicated to his memory and that a copy of this resolution properly attested be forwarded to his beloved relatives, and that when the house adjourns today, it do so in honor of this deceased hero. And it was signed by Holiday Lang, Haydusek, and Johnson. Sam Johnson, the representative for Jordan's home county of Gillespie, that had his name attached to this resolution would later refer to Jordan and his sacrifice when defending his German-Texan constituents against proposed anti-German legislation. And his son, who was nine years old at the time of Jordan's death, would grow up to be President Lyndon Baines Johnson and send United States troops to another war in Vietnam many years later, where over 3,000 more Texans would die or go missing out of the over 50,000 Americans that lost their lives in that war. Now, in the Texas Senate, Bear County's Carlos B. introduced a resolution to honor Jordan. It was simple resolution number 32, resolved that the Senate 
has heard with profound regret of the death upon the battlefield of his country of Lieutenant Louis J. Jordan, United States Army of Fredericksburg, Texas. Lieutenant Jordan was the descendant of the race of men who sought in this land a haven of refuge from Prussian autocracy and has gallantly met the supreme test of devotion to one's country. Be it further resolved that the Secretary of the Senate be instructed to express the deep sympathy of the Senate of Texas to the bereaved family of the deceased and furnish a copy of this resolution to the said family. The resolution was read and adopted. Now, there are a lot of what-ifs in history. What would have happened had Louis Jordan survived the war? I can only speculate. I do know that his death was a severe loss to his father, brothers, sisters, and friends, and to the community, both in San Antonio and in Austin. And I can pretty confidently say that he would have fought on with his brothers in arms, because they fought on, just like he would have insisted. And they played a prominent part in American operations during the war. Following Jordan's early March death, Germany launched a second spring offensive, the Battle of the Lys, in the British sector of Armentieres on April 9, 1918. With an overwhelming number of troops, the Germans captured the channel supply ports at Calais, Dunkirk, and Boulogne. This could prove devastating for the British. Then on May 27th, Germany launches third German spring offensive, the Third Battle of the Ain. The Germans hoped to split the British and French forces before more American forces could reach the battlefields. The next day, the 28th of May, about 4,000 U.S. troops gained their first victory in their first major action of the war at the Battle of Tantigny. Following Jordan's death, the Rainbow Division proceeded on July 12, 1918 to relocate to the Champagne sector and attach to the French army there. And it was believed that they were about to be under imminent attack. And within four days, the attack came and bloody combat followed. On July 15, 1918, when the Second Battle of Marne began, Germany launched the final phase of its Great Spring Push. Germany's troops, depleted and exhausted by the previous spring efforts, began to show that it had paid a heavy toll. The Alabama 167th Infantry of the Rainbow Division were also there and resorted to fighting with their trench knives, repulsing 11 German attacks and closing up breaches with their dead. Half the regiment died in the fighting. On July 18th, the Allies counterattacked and seized the initiative on the Western Front. Five days after the trench fighting at Champagne, the division moved by train to the area near Chateau Thierry and rested for three days before receiving orders to attack. Newly battle-tested, the 42nd Division that Jordan would have been part of went on the offensive in its first major attack near Chateau Thierry. And this is also known as the Ein Marne Campaign. The 42nd had been in the trenches since March, and General Pershing had been pushing to let his troops off the leash. On July 25, 1918, Allied Commander Ferdinand Folk ordered the 42nd Rainbow Division to drive northeast and push the Germans back from their threat to Paris. Jordan's fellow soldiers of the 42nd then assisted in capturing 25 kilometers of land in 10 villages. The 42nd, during this defensive and attack, lost another 184 officers and 5,469 men, or roughly one quarter of its entire 
strength. General Pershing had learned in this time that he could trust the 42nd to achieve its combat objectives, and Jordan's Rainbow Division went back into combat on September 11, 1918, in the first all-American offensive of World War I at San Mihiel, where its artillery fire, according to Lieutenant McCrumman, was, quote, so effective that the infantry had little to do. The Germans were driven into the dugouts, and all the infantry had to do was throw in a grenade, and they swarmed out saying, Comrade, as they usually did. August 8, 1918, marked the beginning of the Battle of Amiens, which was the opening phase of the Allied Hundred Days Offensive, the offensive that would ultimately lead to the end of World War I. And then in September, the last Franco-American campaign, the Moose Argonne Offensive began, and the Rainbow Division was there to doing their part. This was the battle that the famous Corporal, later Sergeant Alvin York, captured 132 German prisoners. During this offensive, Lieutenant McCrumman, who was next to Jordan's position when he died, saw his regiment get wiped out. McCrumman's regiment's two battalions had only one battery each by the end of the battle. Each had started the battle with three batteries each, and due to losses, everything had to be consolidated into one battery for each battalion to keep fighting. By October 4th, 1918, Germany was requesting an armistice, and by the middle of October, the Allies had gained control of almost all of German-occupied France and part of Belgium. Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated on November 9th, 1918, and on November 11th, at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, Germany signed an armistice with the Allies. This is the official date of the end of World War I. On the floor of the British House of Commons that day, David Lloyd George declared that at 11 o'clock this morning came to an end the cruelest and most terrible war that has ever scourged mankind. I hope we may say that thus this fateful morning came to an end all wars. Now, there was a lot of hope in this statement. Unfortunately, death and destruction would return all too soon. Now, let's go back home and see what was going on there. Jordan, who had played football every year from 1911 to 1914, along with being on the track and field team in 1913, 14, and 15, was the first of many University of Texas alumni to fall. The undefeated football team of 1914 provided 15 servicemen. Eight of the 15 saw foreign service, and at least two died and two were wounded. Hundreds of of UT alumni joined the armed services and most of the university's athletes from various teams served. Bothwell Kane, Jordan's teammate in 1914, also fought for the 42nd Infantry Division and he fell in action crossing the river on July 27, 1918. Mullen D. Wallace, a member of the track team in 1915 and 16, he died on September 12, 1918. James A. Edmond, Jordan's football teammate who played between 1913 and 1915, and who was also a basketball and baseball player. The Waco-born man was ranked among the most accomplished all-around Longhorn athletes of his time, and he died in the Argonne Forest on October 11, 1918. And then there was James F. Greer, a UT wrestler and tennis player who died in an airplane accident on October 21, 1918. Now, Jordan's death, being the first of the war 
for the people of Texas and the University of Texas made an impact on the students, faculty, and alumni. Newspapers across the state carried his obituary. On Sunday, March 10th, 1918, a service was held in Austin in the memory of Lieutenant Jordan. Dr. L.W. Payne read a poem in Flanders Field, which a news article called A Touching Little Poem Written by a Canadian Officer Now Dead. Dr. Payne said, One of the most pathetic incidents that has come out of the many tragedies of the Great War relates to a gallant Canadian, Lieutenant Colonel John McRae of Montreal. During the Battle of Eat, he wrote a little poem which is destined, in my opinion, to be remembered as one of the permanent lyrics of the terrible period which gave it birth. The quiet and peaceful tone of the verses, together with the profound underlying feeling, makes an artistic effect that is beyond praise. The little crosses which mark the graves of the dead soldiers, the unruffled calm of the poppies, and the joyful songs of the larks and the terrible roar of the big guns make a fit setting for the message from the dead. The pathetic personal interest which attaches to the poem is deepened when we learn that Colonel McRae was killed shortly after he penned these immortal lines, and his body now lies beneath the poppies in Flanders Field. Who among us can resist the impulse to answer the call of the dead to take up the quarrel with the foe? This morning we read with a feeling of profound sorrow and regret of the death of one of our own men, Lieutenant Louis Jordan of Fredericksburg. Everybody who was connected with the university during the years while he was here remembers Louis Jordan. He was one of the greatest guards that ever played on an American football team. And more than that, he was one of the finest spirits in the entire student world of those years. May we not read Colonel McRae's lyric this morning and apply the call as coming from our comrade, who may now be lying underneath one of those little white crosses in Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it nigh. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. The Longhorn Magazine carried the following memorial along with a poem credited to Jordan. It is with mingled pride and sorrow that the university records the names of those of her sons who have gone bravely forth to the world combat never to return. As the litany of their names grows longer and the campus flag more often floats midway from its staff, we realize more keenly that in the midst of peace we are at war, and our hearts and our hopes go out to those who but a little time ago shared so vividly in the life of old varsity. Of these there was one who shortly before last March, when he was killed in action, wrote the following verses that expresses in their dogged optimism the splendid spirit of the Texans who have found their way to France. Lieutenant Louis Jordan died with a smile on his lips and a song in his heart. It is for us to make his song our own, and the poem is C'est la guerre. 
Working like a slaver, sloughing in the muck, plowing slowly forward half the time you're stuck. Bullets whistle round you, shells scream overhead. Makes you feel like quitting, kinda wish you're dead. Yet you want to stick with it. Something makes you part. Sure, you're not a slacker. Grin and greet him there. Say la guerre, boy, say la guerre. Liquid fire and gases, hand grenades and shells. Deadly screaming devils, bursting burning hells. Weary nights of fighting, tired days of guns. Make you think the wounded are the lucky ones. Yet you do your darndest, never let a whine. For you know your country wants you in the line. So you keep on going, smiling everywhere. Say la guerre, boy, say la guerre. Freezing in the trenches, starving any time. Helping out a comrade wounded in the line. Lots you care for empires. Lots you care for kings. Home's your only palace. Loves your world of things. Yet your country called you and you answered it. Had to prove your manhood. Proud to do your bit. Laughing at your troubles. Smiling everywhere. Say la guerre, boys. Say la guerre. But the story of Lewis Jordan does not end there with news reaching home. It does not end with him in a grave below a white cross in the French countryside. On June 11, 1918, while the Great War still rumbled on across the Atlantic, the wounds inflicted on Americans and Texans was still fresh when the University of Texas held its 35th commencement and conferred degrees on 249 of its graduating seniors. A headline in the San Antonio Express proclaimed that war clouds make commencement at university sad. Were it not for the war, the festivities would have been better attended and less somber. It was the smallest graduation in at least 15 years. Rhodes S. Baker, an alumni from Dallas, gave the commencement address, and in it he stressed the part and sacrifice the university had made in the Great War. He said that it was a great privilege for any American to be able to say that he had fought alongside the French and English heroes. The university, he stated, has not as yet lost many men in the struggle in comparison to the many men who have left her doors to enter the service. Of the many men who have gone to France, Louis Jordan, an all-American football player and one has returned to this country, decorated with the war cross for honor and bravery, Bob Knight of Dallas. He was wounded on active duty in the trenches. The university has never been under such strenuous conditions. Men have been leaving every day, and more men are going soon. But it is sincerely hoped that the institution can go with as good work in the future as it has done in the past. Two lieutenants, two privates, and one sailor in the service had been allowed to return to participate in the graduation, and the crowd let them know that they were appreciated when it was their turn to cross the stage and get their diploma. The students serving in the military that couldn't attend were sent their diplomas. Then in 1919, the American Legion Post 244 in Fredericksburg renamed itself the American Legion Lewis Jordan Post 244 in his honor. And it still bears that name today. Lieutenant John Fry's return to San Antonio in July 1919 after 22 months of continuous service with the 42nd Division's 150th Field Artillery 
Nine of those months had involved fighting with the Rainbow Division and its major engagements. He was the final man of those that had left the Camp Stanley Officers Training Camp that graduated in August 1917 to return home. Eight officers from the camp had been sent to France. Lieutenant Louis Jordan was the only one that did not return. In addition to Fries and Jordan, there had been Lieutenants Robert Cherry, Aldous Caldwalder, Frank Hicks, George Maverick, Jack Leckie, and Graffin Houston. When the Evangelical Church of Fredericksburg celebrated its 30th anniversary in late October 1919, Jordan's family were present to dedicate two stained glass windows that were installed during the church's renovation, and they were installed in honor of three local boys that had died in France, Jordan and Privates Alfred Schlott and Walter Eckhart. Sixty returned soldiers were also honored for their service. In 1921, his remains were returned to his home state to be interred in the Fredericksburg City Cemetery near his mother that had died in 1907. His body lay in state at the district courtroom following its arrival on a Thursday. A national flag draped over the coffin beneath a layer of many flowers. Reverend K. Konzak said a prayer in the courtroom on Saturday after which the American Legion Quartet the post being named in Lewis Jordan's honor, sang a hymn. Next, Major A.C. Kennedy and the members of the American Legion Louis Jordan post escorted the remains to the cemetery where he was honored with a full military funeral. The local ex-servicemen preceded the hearse, dressed in full uniform and in formation. Behind the hearse walked a riderless horse. One member of the UT faculty and three members of the student body had made it through despite heavy storms and bad roads, to attend the ceremony. Many more had wanted to attend, but the road conditions and the bad storm forced many to return back to Austin. Reverend Konjak delivered a sermon in German at the graveside, and Chaplain Felix G. Stelling and Major Alfred P.C. Petch made statements in English. After them came a glowing tribute made by University of Texas engineering professor Dr. T.U. Taylor, who had been at the university for 33 years and no doubt had known and instructed Jordan. He read a personal letter from University President R.E. Vinson. Then the local Legion Quartet again shared a hymn. Then Sergeant Caldwell of Fort Sam Houston Blue Taps and the firing squad concluded the ceremony laying Louis Jordan to rest in his hometown. Among the attendees, there was also a James P. Buchanan, a member of the Navy during the war, who had crossed the ocean 18 times, T.L. Dennis, who had succeeded Jordan as the football team captain, F.P. Gerling, a member of the American Expeditionary Force and an active fighter in the St. Mahel Drive of the fall of 1918, along with many others who had traveled to honor the fallen son of Fredericksburg. The report in the local paper shows the great impact Louis Jordan had made in his brief life. Said the attendance and floral offerings indicated the high esteem in which the hero was held. Fredericksburg, Gillespie County, and Texas have lost one of its most brilliant young men. The life which he, as many others, has given in this most sacred cause of making the world a better place to live in was not given in vain. His memory will live among us. A continuous reminder of a broader view of human strives and tribulations the world over, of liberty, 
and justice to all humankind. Then, a couple of years later, the University of Texas opened the War Memorial Stadium on Thanksgiving Day in 1924. The student body had decided to name the stadium in honor of the 198,520 Texans who fought and the 5,280 who died in World War I. And the people of Fredericksburg donated a flagpole for it in Jordan's memory. It was dedicated before the Thanksgiving Day game victory over Texas A&M. Today, the stadium is named the Darrell K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium, and the flagpole remained there until 1971. And then, as I said at the beginning of the previous episode, the flagpole was relocated to the Veterans Plaza when it was completed, and it now stands besides the soldier statue that I mentioned at the beginning of the last episode. In 1957, the University of Texas had a 64-year history of fielding a football team. And by then, four players had been named Consensus All-Americans. And seven players from those 64 years would later be honored by being enshrined in the College Football Hall of Fame. But it was Lewis Jordan who stood out in 1957 when the Texas Athletics Hall of Honor was created. He was the only athlete in the inaugural class of four in recognition of those qualities that brought credit and renown to the University of Texas. Over four decades had passed since he graduated, and he was still remembered in such high regard. As Bill Little of the University of Texas Media Relations wrote in 2014, Lewis Jordan is important to us today because he represents what this game of football means to both sides. It is a challenge of the human spirit, and it is a contest played only on a Saturday in mock war. Lewis Jordan reminds us that leadership and drive matter, not only in a football game, but in life. And with that, now is a good time to take a break. And then I'm going to come back with a conclusion and some further words about the sacrifice of Lewis Jordan. George F. Kennan, an American diplomat who played a significant role in our relations with the Soviet Union and Europe, stated that he saw the First World War, quote, as the greatest seminal catastrophe of this century, the event which lay at the heart of the failure and decline of this Western civilization. As noted earlier, Lewis Jordan was the first officer from Texas and one of the first Americans to lose their lives in the Great War, but he was far from the last. His death made an impact on a lot of people at the front and back at home. But to say that his one death is the main lesson of this episode would be disingenuous. He was but one of his division's 14,683 casualties. Most of the survivors of the division that had known him and these other dead sailed for home from Brest, France on three battleships on April 15, 1919 and arrived in New York on April 25th. The Rainbow Division saw more days of combat than any other American division during the Great War. 40 million, now this is an approximate number, of military and civilian casualties, meaning dead and wounded, for the Great War. Roughly half of these were the dead and half were the wounded. Just considering the dead alone, there were about 9.7 million military dead and 10 million civilian deaths. The Allies had 5.7 million dead 
the Central Powers had about 4 million dead. The Central Powers, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, the German Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, with a combined population of 143.1 million, lost about 5% of their combined populations. And then we must remember the more than 8 million military wounded. The Allied nations, with a combined population of over 806 million, lost 5,711,696 to military-related deaths and 3,674,757 civilians for a grand total of over 9 million. Then we must remember the 12,800,000 military wounded. The United States, with a population of 92 million, lost 116,708 to military-related deaths and only 757 civilians for a grand total of 117,465 dead. And then we should also remember the more than 200,000 military wounded. Lieutenant Lewis Jordan is worth remembering for the things he did in his too brief life and for the great loss caused by his death. He was among the first of many. A total of over 180,000 Texans served in the armed services during the United States' brief part in the Great War. 127,000 or more had been drafted. And then 37,704, like Jordan, had volunteered for the United States Army and National Guard. Texas was represented in the United States Navy also by 16,000 or more, and in the United States Marines by over 2,000. The people that served suffered unbelievable hardship and endured what one Irish serviceman I saw interviewed years after described as unspeakable punishment in conditions that another historian called obscene. Out of all of these Texans that served in the armed services, at least 5,170 Texans died. This number includes seven Gold Star women from the Nurse Corps. Let's not forget that. Not all of these deaths were in Europe or from combat. Over a third of the total deaths occurred inside the United States, and many of these deaths were also caused by the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 that killed millions more worldwide. In a set of statistics released in 1920, Texas is stated to have suffered a total of 10,133 casualties, and that's out of 463 officers and 9,670 men. And this report breaks it down in great detail. 24 officers and 432 men died of wounds. 29 officers and 913 men died of disease. 59 officers and 1,105 men were killed in action. 9 officers and 43 men died of accident. 8 men drowned. 1 officer and 10 men committed suicide. 1 officer and 9 men were killed killed from murder or homicide. Listed as other known causes were one officer and 15 men. Causes undetermined included three officers and 35 men. Presumed dead, 25 men. Total dead, 127 officers, 2,595 men. Prisoners that died was one officer and 2,595 men. Repatriated, 10 officers, 65 men. Wounded slightly, 145 officers, 2,780 men. Wounded severely, 131 officers, 2,549 men. And then wounded degree undetermined, 49 officers, 1,670 men. Total 
casualties, 464 officers, 9,670 men. It is for each of these deaths and the deaths of all that have been lost in our wars before and since that we observe Memorial Day and Veterans Day. And in 1920, the history of Texas World War Heroes was published. And that's where I got the statistics. And in its introduction, it carried the following words, showing how people felt about the loss of Lewis Jordan and the many others that joined him in graves across the Atlantic. It said, He heard his country's call. He went forth, an American boy, your boy and mine. He counted not his own life dear, but offered it gladly in humanity's name, for God and for the right. It is our right and our duty to be proud of him. For those who died in the service, the honor and glory is theirs. For those who offered all and still live, may the glory of the future ring. The Great War made a great impact on Texas, and it in part is responsible for changes that began the creation of the Texas that we have today. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the Great War's impact on Texas, I strongly encourage you to visit the Texas Historical Commission's Texas in World War I historical marker map online. It features an interactive display of locations, text, and photos. I'll try to put a link in the show notes. There are many more stories of Texans that served in World War I that we could learn about, and we'll probably get to a lot of them in the future. This list includes the four Texans who were awarded the Medal of Honor, Samuel Sampler, David Hayden, Daniel R. Edwards, and David Barkley, the first Hispanic American to win the Medal of Honor. Sampler, Hayden, and Edwards lived long lives. Barkley from Laredo died two days before the armistice. The Korean War is often referred to as the Forgotten War because it is often overshadowed by the Second World War and the Vietnam War. I think, and this is just a thought, not a fact, the Great War, the First World War, probably comes in close second or third in the list of contenders for the title of the Forgotten War simply because of the huge amount of attention given to World War II in Vietnam. Then we must also remember those that have served in the wars we have been in for the last two decades. You're probably familiar with a version of the phrase attributed to General Robert E. Lee at the Battle of Fredericksburg. One version goes like this. It is well that war is so terrible we would grow too fond of it. From the Union side of the Civil War, we have versions of an equally famous quote by General William Tecumseh Sherman. War is hell. During the Civil War, while his army was occupying Atlanta, Sherman wrote to the city officials that war is cruelty and you cannot refine it. A number of years after the war, while addressing Michigan Military Academy, Sherman said, I am tired and sick of war. Its glory is all moonshine. It is only those who have neither fired a shot nor heard the shrieks and groans of the wounded who cry aloud for blood, for vengeance, for desolation. War is hell. Author H.G. Wells, in 1914, initially coined the phrase, the war to end all wars, when the war broke out. I can't speak as to whether or not it was just a hopeful idea or if anyone actually believed it, but as we all know, it wasn't. War continued on after the peace agreement at Versailles in 1919, and 20 years later, the Second World War brought much more death and destruction, and war continues today. 
One interesting comment on war comes from author Cormac McCarthy, who in his 1985 novel Blood Meridian wrote these words for a character called Judge Holden. It makes no difference what men think of war, said the judge. War endures. As well ask men what they think of stone. War was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be. That way and not some other way. And I'll close with another quote. This one is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 6, in which Jesus said, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And one more quote from another author I admire. So it goes. Thanks to everybody for listening to this episode. I have another brief episode I'm going to be putting out next week. An interesting little story that I found I want to share. Thanks to Derek McClendon for sharing the theme music. Thanks to everybody that helps the show out on Patreon and by clicking the link to buy me a cup of coffee. So yeah, that's it. That's a long one. Hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed researching and writing it. And I learned quite a bit from it. Uh, There's a lot more that I still don't know from that time period that I'm looking forward to learning more and sharing in the future. Let's end this episode with a song by the talented J.R. Tully. Be sure to go check out his music everywhere you get your music. So take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios. Pain in the tall grass. Sway in the tall grass. Laid in the tall grass. Stay in the tall grass. Can't kill the cat yourself, son. Can't kill the cat yourself. Gotta be already dead What your grandma said Can't kill the cat yourself Stick it in a boiling pot, son Drop it in a boiling pot Just the bones all left No fur, no flesh Drop it in a boiling pot Gonna be
laid in the tall grass Stay in the tall grass Tall grass.